Hey everyone, welcome back to the M&M Hockey Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alex Metzger. Along with me is my co-host, Chase McCallum. And today we have uh, a loaded episode, really. Uh, you know, uh, we got uh, Andrew Berkshire coming at the end of the episode. Uh, we had a great interview with him, just finished that talk. We're going to put it at the end, as we usually do. Uh, and then today, this is one of the rare times that we, usually when we have a guest on, the guest is obviously the highlight. I still think it is. You know, I, I thought the talk today with uh, Andrew was really good, but this is one of the very few times we have a news story that is almost just as big and will take up just as much of the podcast as a 35-minute interview did. And uh, honestly, this is probably just about all we'll talk about. If we, you know, if we don't, if we talk about other stuff, I will be a little surprised. But um, Chase, let's get into the Tom Wilson stuff, shall we? Oh God, I'm I'm excited. So. <laughs> I feel like I almost feel like I don't need to explain because I feel like anyone listening will probably already know a lot of what's happened, but we'll start at the beginning. Uh, Monday night, <laughs> Tom Wilson and the Capitals are playing the Rangers in honestly a meaningless game. The Rangers are very much so out. Uh, the Capitals, they're kind of fighting for seeding, but you know, with uh, we, we talked about that division last week, it's just kind of a, a cluster, you know what? So it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, you know, like, they're, they're two points behind Pittsburgh. They're two points up on the Bruins. It's a relatively meaningless game. Um, well, Tom Wilson ends up being Tom Wilson. So Buchnevich is down on the ground. Tom Wilson punches him in the back of the head, straight into the ice. That causes, causes a massive scrum. Panarin jumps on Wilson's back. Wilson then ragdolls him to the ground. His head bounces off the ground, and he starts punching uh, Panarin on the ground as well. Let's start with this, because this is, you know, obviously the logical starting spot. There's no place for that in hockey. There's just I'm like, and I, I'm sorry, but like, there's not. And, you know, there was a, a video of Sidney Crosby putting someone's head down. I, one of the Flyers players heads down on the ice the other day too. And I quote tweeted that and said, that should be a game suspension as well. If you're smoking someone from behind the head, putting them face first in the ice, that should be an automatic one game suspension. It's even worse when you have a repeat offender for doing not that, but crap a lot like that, doing that exact same stuff. And he gets absolutely nothing for it. Yeah, well, that's the thing when everybody's like, oh, well, this wasn't a suspension. It's like the people who think beating your head into the ice should be a suspension probably think all of them should be a suspension. Like that's such a straw man argument for those who brought it up. But of course, Tom Wilson, if there's any benefit of the doubt to be given to anyone, he is literally the last person on earth who deserves it. Yeah, exactly. It's like he's just he's so far past or blown past benefit of the doubt to this point where it's like, you should be doubting everything he does. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I can't believe anyone is like, no, you got to look at this objectively. No, you don't. It's Tom Wilson. Yeah, like, he, he is who we thought he was. He has shown that over and over and over again. Yes, and like, even just like, you could tell he was out and, you know, like when you just watch back through you know some of the shifts, you could tell he was trying to hurt someone. He was looking to start shit so he could go out and hurt someone. It's like, this is who the guy is. And, you know, like if you, if you don't do anything to stop, he's already been suspended seven games this season. Like, so the, the play is bad enough, right? It's yep. made way worse by the fact they give him a $5,000 fine and absolutely nothing else. And I get it's not technically worse, but to me, the optics of giving him a 5K fine and not a suspension is way worse than just giving him nothing. You know what I mean? Yep, because you're saying 
it's one thing to just completely ignore it. It's another thing to be like, we looked through this thoroughly and said, no, nah, it's not really a big deal. Yeah, like they're, the fine says that something, they do think that this is wrong, but they don't think it's that wrong to a degree or don't think his history should have any play in it. And part of this, and, you know, we'll get into obviously takes and, um, you know, Greg Wyshynski was, uh, he's enemy number one on Twitter right now. And for good reason, he's really, he's been digging himself a hole, but he explained his thoughts a lot better on puck soup. It's just, I disagree that, you know, what he was saying actually was what he was saying on Twitter, but still his point was more just that like the NHL, their suspension process, there was no situation in which Tom Wilson was getting 20 games for this because the way this it's stupid, but the way that the NHL suspension thing works is if you get suspended three times for checking to the head or, you know, um, yeah, checking to the head, we'll, we'll use that, right? Like you just, you're braining people, leaving your feet and blindsiding them. Th- those will um, be more games. But if you check someone in the head three times in a month and then a month later you spear someone in the chest, you're not getting 30 games because you speared on top of three head checks. For whatever reason, they look at the spear completely apart from the head checks, which is just, again, the dumbest thing I've ever seen. So there was no aspect where he was That's getting. Fucking insane. Is, isn't that crazy? Like, how stupid is that? That would be like if somebody asked Evolving Wild Twins who are building an XG model, say, is Austin Matthews a good shooter? And they're like, well, we don't know because he doesn't have enough slap shots in his career to answer that question. You'd be like, well, you can look at more evidence than that, right? And them being just like, no, no, we're just going to look at this one thing like yeah but but can we know it's like well yeah yeah you you, you can pr- know pretty well you know what i mean it's like and, and the stupid thing about that is you can have a bad slap shot but have a good wrist shot there's no you're a bad person when it comes to head checking people but you're actually a good person when it comes to spearing people it's like no that's not how that fucking works you know what i mean like it's just it's moronic to begin with but so th- that's the thing so uh, what i was trying to get to i guess before i derailed myself there is that there was no scenario in which he was getting hit with a 20-game suspension like last year, right? But the fact that they thought $5,000 of fines is all that he needs is just ludicrous. And I know that's the maximum allowed, and we'll get into the fact that that's stupid as well. But the fact that they looked at that and said, no, there's no suspension needed, and they also singled out. Here's the other stupid part. The fine came directly from the quote saying that it was for what he did to Buzhnevich, which in my opinion was worse. You know, when you get people, some people are trying to defend Tom Wilson because it's like, oh, Panarin jumped on his back. It's like, okay, at some point he realized it was Panarin who is nowhere near a fighter and you probably don't need to ragdoll him to the ground, slam his head off the ice and punch him again. That was bad. Buzhnevich was a completely defensive player who came up and just randomly punched the head of. Like, and so they said that's only worth a 5K fine. And then they said everything that happened with Panarin, that's completely fine. That's hockey play, I guess. And just like the fact that you can look at that and say, yeah, that's exactly what we think just blows my mind. It's almost impressively stupid. It's like that. That's the best way to sum it up. It's just like, it's so broken. And that's just the best way to, to show, you know, like what, what is wrong with this league and this department of player safety. And, you know, there was reports coming out that Paris didn't even want to suspend him earlier in the year, but Gary Bettman came in and said, no, 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 we are absolutely doing that. Um, and that's why you got the seven games. And it's just, so I don't even know where to go next from this. I, do you want to get into the, the, the tweet or should we get into George Paros and the department first? Uh, Paros first, maybe. And then okay. the tweet, because this is kind of like the logical order that went in on Twitter. 
Sure. So let, let's let's get into George Peros, and um, I'm going to pull up a list here for a second. But um, you know, I tweeted out today, and so one of Greg, Greg Wachinski's things, uh, the the thing that got him in the biggest trouble to start was that he was claiming that um, people were freaking out more because this was Tom Wilson, and yes. That's And you should, because he has a history of doing stuff like this. But at the same time, it's like, well, you wouldn't be calling him out. You wouldn't be, if this was um, Garrett Hathaway, you wouldn't be calling him to be kicked out of the league. It's like, no, because Garrett Hathaway doesn't have nine suspensions in his past four seasons. You know what I mean? Like, it just, it doesn't make sense to me. But when we're going to get to um, George Peros and and what he's done, uh, Earl Schwartz brought up this. He said, feels like a good time to bring this up again. Even the data shows uh, the Department of Player Safety and Competence. And Perro took over in 2017. The rate and length of suspensions have decreased. The chart shows over the past 12 years of on-ice suspension. And, and the chart, it's like a significant drop-off this year. You know, like um, in average in suspensions per 200 games played and also just the average length is, you know, that's dropped off incredibly. And, um, you know, there, there was a huge spike in 2011-12 when Shanahan was in there and uh, the, the league decided they didn't want to, but uh, it's just, this is not a one-off thing is the problem. Um, George Paros and his department has just been, they've been incompetent all year of not suspending plays. When there are suspensions, they give one measly game out. It's like, okay, like the dude slew footed dude and could have like ended his career. And I guess, yes, you can end a career on any play, but this one is an illegal play that is stated in the rule book. You are suspended as soon as you do it. And they're going, no, 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 no. One game's good enough for that. And it's just, it's stuff like that that just blows my mind because this is not a one-off thing. This is just the peak of what has happened with this Department of Player Safety. Oh, 100%. And like, it is worth saying that the um, the the game itself has probably gotten like slightly less dirty or whatever. So the absolute number of suspensions would probably go down holding everything else constant in the Department of Player Safety. But yeah, like, I, I don't know how you can come away from it being like this, this department is doing a good job protecting the players. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, and there's been quotes from the, the department saying like, I forget who it was, but they were saying that the onus is actually on the dude getting hit and not the hitter. So if you get blindsided, that's your fault and not the guy who absolutely just brained you with nothing but, you know, head check. And it's just like, if you think like that, you should be nowhere near the department of player safety because you're quite literally saying you don't care about player safety. Yeah, in uh, 2021, you should probably be aware of the general concept that it's not the victim's fault. Yeah, it's just like a that, general statement that is you could stick to and you'll be right far more often than you're wrong. Absolutely. And it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, this was just the perfect way to highlight it. And then, you know, and the, the worst part about this now too, and I tweeted this today too, is so Shane Gostasbear is getting suspended for a cross check that he had on Sidney Crosby. Well, guess what? He deserves to be, or not on Sidney Crosby, sorry. It was on um, Mark Friedman, way, way, way uh, worse player than Sidney Crosby. But it was, on an, it was on an empty net, and Freeman buried the goal, took three stri- or two strides, and then Gostaspear absolutely dummied him from behind into the boards. Now, luckily, Friedman wasn't hurt, but he's still getting suspended for it. I think he got suspended a game, if I'm not, or maybe the, the punishment hasn't come out, actually. Two games, actually. Um and, you know, the, the whole reply, this thing is getting ratioed 1.3 K replies, 1.6 K retweets, the one K likes. And every reply is just, oh, you'll suspend this. But uh, like the first one from Jeff Fayette, who a friend of the podcast, how are you guys so bad at this? 
I mean, I think he probably personally wants more on this suspension, to be honest. Um, but like, it's just most people are quoting saying that. And then they're, but it's not because they think Gostas Bear should be suspended. It's because they're like, how are you suspending this and not tell Wilson when in reality, they both should be suspended? Yeah. Yeah. They're both bad. Like, it's it just, it, and then, so now you're just contradicting yourself and you're making yourself look bad no matter what suspension you do or do give out, don't give out because any suspension you do give out, everyone's just going to be like, well, how can you give this guy a suspension when Tom Wilson didn't get one, you know? Yeah, and it's so annoying because like the, the solution is so simple. All you have to do is just consistently punish predatory things. Yes, like it just... It's crazy that that's, you know, a hot take or anything like that at this point in, in the league. And again, the biggest problem is, or not the biggest problem, the, the biggest problem is that the, you know, the people in player safety are relatively incompetent. But part of what really feeds into this issue is that they're doing the job that the GMs want them to be doing. 31 GMs in this league probably don't mind how department player safety has approached this. And the players union doesn't either because the player union is the one who negotiated the minimum fines for the league. Right. So, or the maximum fine, sorry. And you know, the players union, when Tom Wilson got that massive suspension, it's always so strange because they care about the guy losing money, not the guy who might have a career ending injury because he's still getting that sweet, sweet, uh, um, compensation money and, you know, like, um, insurance money. Whereas the guy losing money, that's for whatever reason, the guy they go to fight to. And this is a, an overarching problem more than just George Peros, but it starts with Peros and the department of player safety. A hundred percent. And it's so weird that they don't see that there's, there's, you have, your job is to protect both players in this situation. And the one who might lose his career to like a brain injury, you would think would be your priority. Yeah, but it, it never is, like, at all. Yeah, that's it's a strange league. I, I'm, it's sad because, like, this is so predictable. Yeah, everything about – well, not everything about this, but a lot about what has played out has been just incredibly, like, oh, yeah, this is going to happen, and then that's going to happen, and then this is going to happen because of it. Yeah, exactly. So let's get into again the, the the one really just wild card turn in all of this. So yesterday on Tuesday night, or I guess two days ago when this probably comes out, but Tuesday uh, the Rangers then come out with a statement, and this is one of the most heavy hitting statements I have seen in a long time from any professional sports team. And uh, I'll read it out here. It's a bit of a, a mouthful, but the New York Rangers are extremely disappointed that the Capitals forward Tom Wilson was not suspended for his horrifying act of violence last night at Madison Square Garden. Wilson is a repeat offender with a long history of these types of acts, and we find it shocking that the NHL and their Department of Player Safety failed to make the appropriate action to spend him indefinitely. Wilson's dangerous and reckless actions cause an injury to Artem Panarin that will prevent him from playing again this season. We view this as a dereliction of duty by the NHL head of player safety, George Peros, and believe he is unfit to continue his current role. I cannot ever think of a time when a team has come out on social media and called for the firing of anyone in their league. Can you? No, teams don't even release statements that passionate when the stance is supposed to be like, hey, don't kill black people. Literally. And or like, yeah, everyone belongs in hockey or something like that, you know, like 
Especially like in the NHL, anyways. It should be in the league, too. Yeah, like, you just never see states statements like that. It was freaking wild to see it. Yeah, and so I'm reading through, and I'm like, I don't know, we'll dissect this statement in a second, but it was the end that I was just like, no way they just called for him to be fired or, or you know, quit or whatever. And I was like, that is, uh, that is just incredible content. And so, um, you know, and it gets even weirder, and we'll get into that, too. But let, let's go to the statement because, A, I'm totally fine with the statement, to be honest. Like, I, I think it's, you know, if you're that displeased, you know, show your displeasure. Um, but you got to go farther than that. And, and that's something we'll also get into. I will say some of it's a little over the top, like horrifying act of violence. We both kind of laughed when I read over it. It's, I don't know. Like, yes, there, there's absolutely no place for what Tom Wilson did in the game last night. But just describing it like that in a presser, it did kind of make me go, oh, my God, what do we like? Just kind of uh, laugh feels wrong because someone could have gotten seriously hurt. But still. Yeah, it, it does feel right. It's it both feels really overdramatic to call it a horrifying act of violence. And then it does feel wrong to laugh at it because, like, you know, damn well that if he falls a different way, it looks a lot like a horrifying act of violence because he goes headfirst into the ice and there's blood everywhere and stuff like that. I honestly think it's just the word horrifying that makes it so much worse too. like act of violence wouldn't have been that bad. You know, like we're, we're shocked that Wilson was not suspended for his act of violence last night or like, I don't know, like his actions last night, you know, but horrifying act of violence just takes a whole new tone to it. That is just like, oh my gosh. And then, um, you know, you go on and like the, the Wilson being a repeat offender is he's not technically a repeat. Well, yeah, he's not technically a repeat offender anymore. Cause again, for some stupid reason, after it clears for, after you don't do anything for a year and a half or two years or whatever it is, you're magically clear. So if you do something two years and one day after you had six suspensions in a row, now you're totally fine, which is, again, I don't really agree with, but um, you know, and then we get back to the part where um, the, the other part, I thought that they really, really stretched on here. Um, the actions caused an injury to our Artemi Panarin that will prevent him from playing again this season. Do you know how many games the New York Rangers have this left this year? Uh, what do they have, like four games? Three. Two after, you know, they played tonight, which we'll get into the game against the, the, the Capitals tonight. But they had three games left at the time of the statement. Yeah, that was, it was one of those things that it's almost annoying the way they wor- did a couple of the wordings because it drew attention away from what was a totally reasonable message. Yes. And so, yeah, those are because like, that was one of the big, big thing people focus on. It's like, okay, like, yes, it's not good that Panarin's missing any time, but like they're, they're like the, the way that statement sounds, it makes it sound like he's missing 20 games or whatever. Right. It's like, it's three games and you're 10 points outside of a playoff spot. You literally cannot make the playoffs. Like, yeah. And like, they're right he is missing the rest of the season but like you know exactly what you're doing when you yes exactly and so that was something that you know was felt really over the top for the statement but um you know and then the, the other thing so you know they're playing tonight or, you know, they played tonight. So they're playing in two days and it was their first game, obviously first game back between them. This is the other reason I cannot believe they didn't suspend Tom Wilson. Even if you gave him a one game suspension, that would have kept him out of the game tonight. And we will get to the game tonight because that is an, it was an absolute shit show night. I think we should just get into that. Now we can get into the Ranger stuff in, in a second, if that's okay with you. But the game tonight started with a line brawl in which Tom Wilson wasn't involved in. It was six dudes 
who had no beef on the play fighting each other. It's like, what is going on here? First shift, Tom Wilson gets out. Mark Stahl drops his gloves. Or no, not Mark Stahl. Was it Mark Stahl? No, he's not on the team anymore. Um, Smith. Who am I thinking? For fighting, uh, yeah, Brendan Smith. Brendan Smith, thank you. Uh, drops his gloves above the blue line, charges to the red line, and has a sucker punch off on Wilson before he even knows what's happening. So they get in the fight. So there's four fights in 50 seconds, including an instigator penalty. And then there's two more fights four minutes later. There were six fights in about four minutes to start this game. And not all of this would have been avoidable, avoidable, but a large part of this would have been avoidable if they just took Wilson out for even this game, you know? Yeah, I would go as far to say as most. Yeah, like there's no way the line brawl starts the game if Tom Wilson isn't playing, I don't think. No, not a chance. There would probably be something stupid, but like there's no way there's four fights in the first 50 seconds or whatever the hell. Yeah, there's not. I, I think it was literally like 100 penalty minutes in 50 seconds or something stupid like that. And then it's like, I, I've just like, I've, I've been reading through it a couple times tonight. Like, I think they're at over 100. They were at 127 penalty minutes in the first two periods. And so, like, that's just not good. Yeah, the Rangers have 85 minutes in penalties tonight and the Capitals have 56. That's just yeah, not good I, for the. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, that's just not good. Yeah, and we can get into the the old Greg Wyshynski with the shovel already about eight feet in the hole. Just, like, conflating the fact that views equal good for the game. Because, like, this will definitely bring eyeballs to the game. But, like, those two things need – that's not a perfect causation there, that more eyeballs is always equal to good. Like, a whole bunch of people tuned into NFL coverage, I'm sure, when Aaron Hernandez – if they found out he was a murderer and nobody was sitting there being like, yeah, that's good for the game because there's eyeballs talking about the NFL. Yeah. Like literally. So it's a national broadcast game and a take. So again, what Greg Wyshynski tweeted out, I feel bad. Like, cause I, like, I don't hate Greg or anything like that. I, like me and you talked about puck soups are one of our favorite podcasts, but you know, he goes, this is an absolute embarrassment to the sports that everyone watching a game they'd otherwise ignore in order to see how the sport would be embarrassed. And the best way Jeff, they had replies People slow down to look at car accidents on the highway. That doesn't mean they think wrecks are good and they hope to see another one at the next exit or that they don't want car manufacturers to have safer guard guidelines. And it's like, yes, that is the perfect way to put it. It's like, just because people are tuning in to see what absolute lunacy turns on doesn't mean that's something you should be embracing and saying, this is actually amazing. Yeah, a hundred percent. Cause like, I know people who are watching this game right now that otherwise would not have been. And like, I guess if, ratings on a Wednesday night at nine o'clock is your end goal, then it was a success. But like, I can't imagine this is some sort of long-term good thing for hockey. Yeah. Like it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's insane to me. And then, yeah. So, so the game tonight, it starts with all those fights. Uh, Tom Wilson gets out of the box. There's another fight. Uh, miscon or almost another fight. There's misconducts. Tom Wilson then mysteriously cannot return to the game tonight because he's got an upper body injury. Maybe he's actually hurt. Maybe he's not. I didn't, you know, I didn't see anything online of like a very obvious play where he would have got head checked or anything like that. So I very much wouldn't be surprised if the team went, this is way crazier than we thought. Let's just hope that taking him out as injured and not letting him play for the rest of the game diffuses the situation, which it did a little bit, but not really. 
Um, because Pavel Buchnevich then, who he was the one who got punched in the back of the head last night, cross-checked Jacob Vrana in the face today. And that was an ugly one too. They were both going at it. I don't think he really meant to absolutely just dome him in the face like that, but that's still uh, an ugly, a dangerous play. That's for sure. Well, and that's the worst part about all this shit is because in the end, Tom Wilson, who's good, but not great. Like it's always going to be a man, like somebody actually good ends up bearing the cost of this. Yes, absolutely. Like, and it's, it's like somebody worth watching who gets punished for this, these stupid plays whenever there is retaliation like that. Well, and, and that's what one of the biggest things I think of that I've heard over the radio and stuff over the past couple of days, like, well, back in my day, if that happened, you know, Backstrom and Ovechkin would be looking over their shoulder because they're the ones who'd be getting it. It's like, well, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see anyone get hurt, but I definitely don't want to see some random innocent skilled players get hurt because, you know, a, a goon took out, you know, another okay player on the other team. Yeah, like, um, it's a lucky that, because Mantha's good, but not like an absolute superstar. But like, imagine watching a playoff series without Ovi because Tom Wilson had to do this shit. Yeah, and then one of the Rangers, the Rangers just got a goon or something and just went and took out an ACL on, on over your backstrom or someone like that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because <sighs> that's the eye for an eye that you can't even blame them for thinking because it's kind of what you're incentivizing by not punishing them yourself. Well, and, and that's the thing, right? Is yes, this still would have been probably a stupid game no matter what. But if you give him a three game suspension or something like that, at least the Rangers are more satisfied because Wilson's mid, or let's say, like, I, I don't know. So here's a great because I was going to get into what would you give him. And um, I thought um, uh, Lambert on the, on the Puck Soup podcast had a really good uh, one on this. He said, whatever, I think it was six games. So that would be or five games is what he said, actually. So it was pretty, basically the Capitals last four games plus a playoff game, you know? So, and cause playoff games are worth two. So it's, it's six or whatever. So it's like you, you suspend him. Yes. You can't suspend him for super, super long, but he's, he's out of the regular season. He probably doesn't care about that, but he, he misses one playoff game, which he does care about that way. It probably diffuses the situation tonight. And it is actual punishment. I would go more aggressive if the rule book allowed or whatever, but like, that's something I think there's the, this department of player safety should have been looking at a hundred percent. And that seems reasonable because what some other people are saying is, well, this isn't even close to the worst thing Tom Wilson's done, which is of course why he deserves to be suspended for <laughs> even longer than a normal person would. But what That's you do not... is give him the five games, miss the playoff game. And then you just absolutely throw the book at him the next time he does something even worse. Cause you know, it's coming. Yeah. And, and, this isn't the worst thing that Tom Wilson has done is not the defense. People seem to think it is. It's like, that is yeah. a good, that is the exact reason people want him suspended because this is nowhere close to the worst thing he's done, but he keeps doing stuff like this. Exactly. And, like, and you know, it's going to get appealed next time he does something stupid, give him 80 games and let the appeal drag it down to what it should be. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, yes, they probably don't want to, uh, you know, get, get an arbitrator involved if they don't have to. But at the same time, if I'm department of, like that, and that's the biggest problem, like the department of player safety should be someone who's not connected directly with the GMs and what they, the league wants. It should be an external source that just looks at it objectively and goes, no, no, no. Like, I don't care about what you think. This is what it is. You know what I mean? And it's just, it's so stupid to me that that's not how it works, but 
yeah, like if the things were doing right, it's like, and, and the biggest problem is, so when, when you put the games off, like, you know, like you, you said it correctly, like, it's like, well, throw the book at them the next time. That's what they've been doing, but they keep pushing it down the line. So it's like, oh, we well, only get two here and then we'll throw it next time. We'll throw it next time. Well, delaying throwing the book at him just causes you, you're guaranteeing something else is going to happen and probably worse. Right. Which is just, that's not good for anyone either. No, it's, there's no real way of winning with a complete predator that like, cause you've let it get to this point. There's, there's no way out of it. That's good now. No. And the, the worst part it, is, the worst part is, is that it's not like Tom Wilson's Matt cook or Rafi Torres where he doesn't provide anything but being a goon, right? Like those guys, it was easy because no one cared when they got kicked out of the league. When Tom Wilson is actually playing, he has top six production, arguably first line, you know? And and that's the most annoying part is that it's like when he's not being an absolute psychotic person on the ice, he's an actual good NHL player. Yeah, and he's he's actually very good, more than I expected early on in his career when he was actually quite bad. And not only that, but like when Tom Wilson plays not aggressively over the line, he's one of the most entertaining players in the league when you can watch him just bowl guys over and shoulder on shoulder checks and not just take dudes heads off. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, oh man, I don't know. Like it's just, it's crazy to me that it's just, it's absolutely insane. I don't know. Like I, I'm almost at a loss for words. I'm also just looking. So um, the one good news out of this absolute shit show of a game that happened tonight, TJ Oshi, who lost his dad, unfortunately this week, he returned tonight for this game. Uh, he just completed a hat trick. Apparently I think it was to put them up four one five one. So um, well, that's or two. So th- that's a, that's a good story, at least out of a very, very bad one. Um, we haven't even got <laughs> through half of this really, because there's a whole other team to this with the New York Rangers that uh, after the statement comes out, they end up firing their GM and president of hockey operations, uh, Jeff Gordon. And I don't remember the president of hockey operations name. So forgive me. Um, they both get let go and it comes out that, you know, um, so there's a lot of theories right now. It sounds like the, the Rangers are trying to make it sound as if, um, this was actually going to happen no matter what. And it's because they didn't like the season with, you know, apparently James Dolan thought that they've underperformed or whatever this year. Um, I don't know if that, I believe that because why would you not just wait for about three more days and fire them at the end of the season? Um, it's, I don't know. Like it's, it's absolutely strange. So, you know, and then the other, the other theory with this was obviously that, uh, so it sounds like James Dolan made the statement and then um, from that, you know, the, the two guys didn't, you know, the president of hockey operation and, Je- and then Jeff Gordon, the GM didn't actually agree with it and let everyone know. And that's why they got to let go. And either way, it's um, not something I was expecting. I wasn't even expecting them to be fired after this season, to be honest. Yeah, that was one of those like double, triple, quadruple check the check marks tweets when you see it, because I absolutely could not believe this. Yeah, it was just like, what? And then it was like, so everyone either thought they made the statement and Dolan was like, no, I'm firing you. Or Dolan made the statement and it was like, no, we're not agreeing. And then now they're trying to convince it was not really either one of those. It's like, and the biggest reason I didn't think they'd get fired is because of the reactions. Exactly what we saw on Twitter today is people calling them stupid for this guy. They built this team up like crazy. Like, 
you know, uh, one friend of the podcast, Trevor Shackles, said he would put him up in the top five with the elite GMs of Breezebois, Iserman, and uh, Sackick. And I like my jaw dropped. I was like, that is an insane. And I like, again, I love Trevor. I, I agree with probably 98% of his takes. This was clearly in the 2% because I don't think I would have him anywhere near there. So, you know, we can go through their work as, as well here, but yeah, I was absolutely shocked that they, uh, they were fired. Yeah. This is one of the things I most passionately agree with uh, at Yolo Pinato on Twitter, because a lot of people are really, I agree with him a lot on this because a lot of people are really, really, really high on the Rangers rebuild. And they were admittedly better than they looked this year, but I do not understand it at all. Like, I don't think the future is nearly like they, they have a bright enough future. You know, they have a league MVP, uh, and fantastic first overall pick or whatever, but like, I don't think James, their GM deserves some massive like praise or anything, Like he definitely doesn't belong in the same sentence as Eiserman, Breezebois and Sackick. No, no. And so, and yeah, so this is the big thing is the rebuild is only to consider a rebuild because they fell ass backwards into two lotteries. Like they skipped like eight and nine spots in which two lotteries that they had no business being in to select Kako second overall and then Lafreniere first overall. And it's just, it's so let's go through their moves because, you know, me and you have been lower on the the Rangers all year for well over a year now, you know, just from their rebuild to the team they actually have in place. And here's the biggest reason I don't really give them much credit for what they've done so far. Um, You look at through their four, four biggest moves, I would say one is drafting Kako again, Easy call. He was the clear number two, and you fell into a lottery in which you were supposed to be picking eighth or ninth overall. Second is drafting Lafreniere, which, again, you were supposed to be picking ninth overall, and then Lafreniere absolutely fell into your lap. Um, also, the neither of those looked like home runs. Like, they were the obvious thing to do. I'm sure both players will turn out great, but it's not like these are like the – when you say the next generation of superstars, nobody's exactly lining up to put those two names in it right now. No way. And so, and I think that's, there's a reason I think for that too, that I'm going to get to in a second as well. But so the third biggest move is, is signing Panarin, which this is the one I will give them the most credit for, but I still don't think they deserve like a ton of credit because by all reports, that was, that was like the Rangers were the one team Panarin really, really wanted to go to. And then he would have settled for like three other teams or whatever. And so it's just like, well, yeah, like you get some credit for selling him on this, I guess, but like, how much should you really get for having a guy who was pretty much like, yeah, it's your city or I don't really want to go anywhere else, but I will, if you just don't give me a deal at all, like how much credit do you get for that? Well, not, you just definitely deserve some because you still have to court him or whatever. But I think the biggest problem with the Panarin signing was like, so if you just look at it on paper, like in NHL, Panarin's cap hit percentage and like war versus like what the Tavares contract was. Like the Panarin contract's a better signing, but the problem was it never fit the team's window. They just said they were rebuilding, and they're like, by the way, we're going to sign a guy who just makes our team better, like way better right now, but like we want to be bad right now, and then he's probably not going to be worth the contract by the time we do want to be good. Like that was always the dumb part of the Panarin contract, and he's not going to be like 31 by the time, or he's going to have to be like 31 by the time we see if that turns out to be true. And I think it will be because age curves exist. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's just like, yeah, it's like, imagine how much differently people would be looking at it. If it's like they picked their seventh overall or whatever, and then went and signed Panarin and then picked eighth overall, like they actually should have without 
insane luck in the lottery. And again, it didn't happen that way. So good for them. But like, it's like they said they were going to rebuild, rebuilt for a year and a half when they sold McDonough and, and then, you know, just, Stopped basically, and it's just one of those things. Why? And then, so the the fourth biggest move is they currently have a Norris level defenseman on their roster in Adam Fox, who they traded for, and people were giving them props for that. Adam Fox said it's literally the New York Rangers are bust. He told two organizations to go screw themselves because he was only going to play with the Rangers, and they gave up. You know, they gave up two seconds, which they're not complaining about now. But literally, it was like that. We consider that good value for Carolina at the time because of the fact that like they literally were not. They had no other option. Yeah, and it's one of those moves that even if you don't account for the fact that he um, said he would only go to New York, like the base rate of guys coming out of college being as like Adam Fox is a complete outlier. There was no probabilistic like expectation that the expected value of Adam Fox was not this. This is just a humongous outlier. Everything went right. And like credit to them, you have to shoot to hit the target, but still. Like there's an incredible amount of luck that involved that was involved in Adam Fox being as good as he is. And I guarantee you the Rangers with true serum in them did not expect him to be as good as he's been. No, if you told the Rangers in year two, Fox is going to be a legit, they should probably win the Norris. They would be like, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. No, like, like they like, didn't. It, that. No. And, and, and it was, again, it was good. It, but like, it, that's not the, like, I don't want to discredit them for that, but the people credit to them, like as if they saw that coming or whatever. It's like, well, no, like it was a smart enough move or whatever, but like, it's just not something that like, like to me, it was just a move that just about every GM in that position would have made, you know? Yeah. They took a shot on a, on a promising prospect who specifically would only want to be there. So basically only they were given the possibility of taking the shot, but they still took it and they got a 99.9th percentile outcome out of it. Which is great, but it's not yeah, like and it then shows like, yourself a huge visionary, right? Some of his other good moves, Spooner for Strom, like I get, like that's a fine enough move, move. But if that's what you're using to propel a guy into the top seven, I just don't think so. Shea for a first, I thought was really good last year, but like even that, like I don't know, like is that much different than what most guys seem to sell at the deadline? Maybe a little bit because Shea is such a big contract, but, and then Broussard in the seventh for Zibanejad in the second. Um, yeah, that was an absolute masterclass, but that trade was half a decade ago now. And Zibanejad is like 28 and now you have to decide what to do with them. So like, those are the good ones where it's like, they, they've absolutely made some good moves, but they've made about like three or four really good moves and absolutely just locked into like three or four different things. And you need luck to be a good GM as well. Don't get me wrong. But then you look at some of the bad things. And the biggest thing is you, you touched on there, not good players. Kako's actually been really good this year. He's like really strong defensively, doesn't do much offensively, but like if he turns out to just be like a Selkie level defend, uh, defensive forward, not what people saw coming, but I don't think anyone would be complaining. Right. But Lafreniere, and he, again, he's 18 years old, 19 years old. That's so hard to adjust the NHL at that age, but he's been brutal this year. And Kaku was horrible last year. Even just like Rasmus Anderson or uh, Leas Anderson, sorry, never turned into anything. Um, you know, like just Chidel never really developed into what they thought maybe he would be. They just have such a list of prospects where it's like, they just didn't really develop. And a big part of that, in my opinion, it's their coach isn't very good in David Quinn. Yeah, that would certainly seem like a reasonable explanation from the outside because they've sure had a lot of talent come in and looked super underwhelming. Yeah. Like Brett Howden, uh, um, 
Julian Gauthier, Phil Chaitel, Vitaly Kratsov. Like some of these guys are not, not bad players either, but they're not like, like this was supposed to be the next just absolute dominant wave of a team. And like, again, like I see people like framing them as if they're like the next Tampa Bay Lightning or something. This roster is absolutely not bad. They have a good defense core because, you know, um, Adam Fox looks really good. Lindgren looks good along Fox. And I like K. Andre Miller as well. But like, it's not like this team is just absolutely can't miss for the next 10 years. Yeah. And what about the fact that in a season where everyone's cash poor, they have a $4 million defenseman sitting in the minors, or I don't even know what Tony D'Angelo is doing, but he's not playing wherever he is because they couldn't see his character concerns coming, which he was literally fucking tweeting out for years. Yeah. I didn't even think of that one today because that's a lot of off ice stuff. Even if you look purely on ice, want to look at some of the bad moves they made that trade for Jacob Truba. They give up Neil Pionk, who's looked like the better defenseman by far over the past two years and a mid first round pick to sign him to like an eight by eight contract, which just looks like a disaster right now. Last off season or last deadline, they should have been trading Chris Kreider. No, we'll give him seven years at 6.5, even though he's 29 years old. It's like, it's just, it's moves like that where it's like, like, this is just, I don't know. Like, I don't think, I don't think what Jeff Gordon did was bad. Like, I don't think he's a bad GM. I just think he, he falls much closer to that 10 to 20 range where it's like, he does some good stuff. He does some bad stuff and he just looks better because he got incredibly lucky compared to like someone who maybe had less variance on their side, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I don't think I'd even accept an argument that he's like below average. Like, I think most of what he's done is more or less exactly what, GM a GM should be expected to do in his shoes and he just happened like he lucked into the picks and like he picked Kako he picked Lafreniere you don't really deserve a huge amount of credit for winning the lottery there but like you did pick them and it makes your future way brighter even though they have struggled but like yeah it's just kind of the baseline that's that's what is expected of you and you sprinkle in some great stuff like the Fox trade like the Zabanajad trade was forever ago but then you showed that you seem to be confused about your window with Panarin. You sign a probably terrible contract with Kreider, Truba, and D'Angelo. Like there's there's good and there's bad, plus some luck. That's that seemed what it seems like to me. Exactly. And like I wouldn't say they won the Ryan. I think they lost the Ryan McDonough trade. Granted the McDonough contract extension didn't look probably won't look awesome for Tampa in a couple of years either. But it's like like I'm trying to think of what they got out of that uh deal i'm looking it up right now but it's like if we want to talk about blockbusters it's just like i don't i just don't think that like it's they didn't do like that so like here here's one from fan-sided tampa has won the trade so far what the rangers got they uh got nemestikov which they flipped to ottawa for a fourth brett howden and libor libor haycheck um so like and and that's for a guy who who is now on the second pair anchoring a stanley cup winning team and looks primed to do it again this year Brett Howden has been one of the worst defensemen that we we've or one of the worst players we've seen over the past three years and um, not defenseman. He's a forward, isn't he? Um, and, you know, Haycheck is not much better. He especially by RAPM. They're both just all completely red in, in every area. So like you got, they got two non NHL players basically. And Vladislav Nemesikov, which they flipped for like a fourth round pick. Yeah. And then they also, and they, they got a first, I believe. Right. Yeah, I think they just whiffed on the first was the problem. Niels, Lund- Niels Lundqvist, 28th overall, and Carl Hendrickson, 58th overall. 
Okay, long quest is legit. That that might look a little bit better. But then another not understanding your windows thing. Like they're going to be paying Kevin Shattenkirk a million and a half a year in two years where they think they're contenders because of a contract that made sense to a good team, but not to them. So they had to buy it out. Yeah. And that would have been Gordon, I think as well, because they would have done that in what? 2016, I believe. Right. Yep. That was him. If the, um, he, if cause he, he took over, was the, yeah, he, he took over in 2015. I want to say, cause I was looking that up today. Uh, Jeff yeah. Gordon, hi. But yeah, because the, the, the Shattenkirk would have been 2016 because I think um, the the he went to the Caps in 2016 and that's when they flamed out to the Penguins. Yeah, the first first year he played with New York was 2017-18. Yeah, so, so yes, been. that would have been, that absolutely would have been Jeff Gordon. So yeah, yeah, it's just, again, that's another one where it's like they signed him to a big contract. Realize it didn't work, bought him out. They're paying him $6 million on the cap this year, 1.4 for the next two. And Kevin Catton, or Kevin, Kevin, Kevin Shattenkirk actually looks like a good player again, like not a 6.5 or whatever, seven or whatever they signed him to, but he's making like three and a half in Anaheim and just is a fine fourth, number three slash four kind of guy, right? Like it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, like uh, to me, they're just, he's a very fine GM. He's not great. He's not bad, but that's just kind of what he is, you know? Yeah, he does what is expected. And they're going to, like, I think they're destined to be in an awkward spot where they're just like, they need something more, but they're just kind of like the 10th best team in the league or whatever. They basically, and like maybe the something more is like Lafreniere, but they basically need these two last picks to really hit, right? Like they need Kako to be as good as he was this year at, at the worst going forward. And they need Lafreniere to turn in the legitimate stud first, first overall pick they think he was, right? Because like if, if that they, hits, then, then you have some difference makers on forward. You have Panarin. Um, but you know, but the problem is they still don't really have anything up the middle, but you can have three or if you have three or four legitimate like elite wingers, you have a Norris defenseman on the back end with, you know, one or two other names. And then their goaltending's not that they, their goaltending for Gorgian and Shostorkin are both pretty promising as well. So like, it's, it's not something that like can't hit or anything, but yeah, it's like they, there's definitely a scenario where you can see this team just being like Philadelphia for the next, over the past 10 years for the next 10 years, you know? A hundred percent. Like they so need Lafreniere to basically be Panarin level of good, assuming that Panarin does in fact age sooner rather than later. Like they're going to need somebody to be the star for their team up front. And if it's not Lafreniere, it's going to be really bad. And he's still very well could be players who score as much as he did in junior get really good. But it's, again, it's not like they deserve a ton of credit for that. It's just kind of, they, cause like usually a team doesn't even deserve that much credit, but at least if you tank, you need some things to go right but it's not as crazy as an outcome for the team in dead last to pick first overall. Like they deserve even less credit than a team normally does for winning a lottery because they weren't even trying to win the lottery. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I'm, yeah. Um, I think we've covered all the branches of this, right? I think so. That was a lot. <laughs> um, I, there was, was a lot that like one topic we've done in forever or like one. Sort yes. Of- it, it was just, it was so much. I mean, it really was the perfect week too. And this is going to actually be a long, well, longish. There'll probably be about an hour and 20 minutes or so. But I was like thinking that we we're going to talk with like 35 minutes with Andrew and then have 20 minutes of content to stretch out. But no, that was a solid 45 minutes. But 
yeah, to, to recap, like, it's just one of those things where I don't know. I, I think it's just kind of the perfect picture of the department of player safety um, being bad. It, it really brought out some takes from respectable people that uh, um, are a little wild. And, um, you know, just, it's one of those things where it's like, you don't want to ever see someone get hurt. Right. It's like, even like, like Tom Wilson's an idiot. I didn't want to see him just like get ran from behind and break his neck or anything like that tonight, you know, like, but it's just like, it's sad that it's like, it's gotten so obvious that the players feel they need to, to um, protect themselves by doing that, that it's like, that's what they have to go out and do. And, um, you know, again, I'm not someone who really subscribes to the whole, you need a goon to step up to those guys. But tonight it was very clear that uh, it wasn't going to be let, it just, it wasn't okay what he did and it was not going to be let go. Yeah, 100%. Joining us now, he's an NHL analyst for the Montreal Gazette. He is also the co-host of the Crosscheck NHL show for Locked On Podcast Network. It's Andrew Berkshire. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. How's it going, man? It's my pleasure. I'm just, you know, hanging out. Kids are in bed. Uh, Wife is with the oldest right now, convincing him to try to sleep. So cross our fingers that there's no meltdown. Yeah, absolutely. Um, today we, you know, we, we figured it'd be a great time to have you on about the uh, to talk about the Canadians. And honestly, we were, we were going to have you on last week, and obviously some stuff came up. And it's funny because it's been literally seven days since we were going to record with you last, and I feel like the tone of this team has dramatically changed over the past, like just from what it would have been last Monday or Wednesday to what it is now on Wednesday night recording this. Um, it, it's it's pretty incredible how how big of a difference it is. Yeah, I mean, obviously Cole Caulfield being able to join the team and uh, unleashing his power in overtime <laughs> two games in a row has kind of changed the narrative around the team for the, for the short term. And I think if you look at how they're playing, uh, they're still not really um, dominating teams or anything like that, but they've shown some gutsy efforts. Uh, I think you have to keep in context that like Brendan Gallagher's out. He's their best forward, maybe even best player. Thomas Tatar has been out. So that's two thirds of their top line and they've got more injuries to deal with as well, including Shea Weber, who wasn't playing great in the first place, but still losing somebody who's playing 25 minutes a night. It's, it's really tough to replace, especially with a team that doesn't have a lot of uh, depth on defense, especially depth on defense that can score goals. So there, there's a lot that they're that's working against them and uh, they managed to come from behind three straight games and uh, they're going to have to do it again against the senators. If they want to add another W to their, uh, to their win column there. Uh, It's, it's an interesting team because obviously the Canadians have been a pretty good five on five team for a few years now, but they haven't been able to get the special teams to go in their favor. And the goaltending has been suspect at times Uh, prices later career has not been what they expected it to be with that to, 10 plus million dollar contract so there's like so many things to talk about with them they're such a enigma wrapped in a i don't know what what is an enigma wrapped in that's worse (laughs) than an enigma it's hard to figure out what their plan is right because they've kind of got their their young players who they're trying to build around but they've got this old guard with them as well and they're stuck between two cores so you don't really know what they are. They have these spurts where they look like they can be a contender, but it never really lasts. The goal scoring drops out or the goaltending drops out and they never really get both at the same time. So you, you look at the moves that they made coming into the season. You think, well, oh, Bergevin did a very good job. Everybody that he added has been full value. You know, like if they hadn't added Jake Allen, they might be out of a playoff spot right now, but 
overall, it just hasn't been enough to be a, like a quote unquote good team. Yeah. It kind of gives me the vibes of like uh, Philly from a couple, even now kind of Philly, but especially from like a year or two ago where, you know, they, they have that old core in, in Voracek and Drew and from Montreal, obviously it's Weber and Price and those guys. And then you got that new young core that, that's coming in and, uh, you know, infusing some life into them. And, you know, Suzuki and Cartagena have been there all year, but now we get to see Cole Caulfield and, you know, two two overtime goals in a row has been huge for them. Um, it's It's been an interesting season because, uh, you know, they started really hot, you know, 10 games where, it was the, the narrative after those 10 games were insane. People were calling them like a top team in the league, which was always crazy, no matter how you looked at it. But then they really regressed over the next, you know, 20, 30 games to the point where they were playing like a team where I think it was underperforming what they actually were. And, you know, again, you mentioned the goaltending. Carey Price has been through injuries and stuff, just, you know, a bit of a letdown this year. But Jake Allen has been the exact opposite of that, you know, standing on his head at times when he's needed to. And, um, yeah, it's a team that feels really hard to get a handle on because, um, and oddly enough, I still think they're kind of right where I thought they might be at the beginning of the year. Um, you know, I, I thought it was, I figured it'd be the Leafs and then the Flames at two and then the Oilers, Canadians, and, uh, you know, I had them three, four and the Jets as a close five. And I think if you told everyone that the Canadians are going to come third or fourth at the beginning of the year, it wouldn't be that surprise, big of a surprise, but just the, the roller coaster that it's been to get here is uh, been a little more surprising than most would have thought. I think. Yeah. I think that's the, the good takeaway, right? They are about where you expect them to be with the roster that they have with uh, the way things have gone. Uh, but it's been so up and down to such extreme degrees and, until recently, like uh, until they came back from their break after they had uh, one of their players test positive for COVID, they had they went, I think, two full months without winning back to back games, which is insane in this condensed schedule. Right. So it, the lack of consistency after that hot start has been so apparent and it, it's always something. And it, it's a like you make a good point pointing out that uh, Carey Price has dealt with some injuries that one of the issues with Carey Price has been that throughout his prime what I, how I like to put it is uh, more in like a driving, like a racing cars analogy and that he, he was redlined his whole career. Right. So Michel Therrien, when he was the coach of the team, uh, they didn't play a great system. Uh, they didn't play a great defense, but they had Carey Price and they had opportunistic scoring in uh, Max Pacioretty and Brendan Gallagher, who were uh, like Max Pacioretty was one of the best goal scorers in the league uh, still is actually. Uh, so they rode Price like 70 games a year and out of all the goalies in the entire NHL for throughout the prime of Price's career, he played the most games that he was available to play. So when he wasn't out injured, it was him number one. And I think Jonathan quick was number two and both those guys, you look at them, they've broken down really young and it, it shouldn't be a surprise. The goaltending position, you talk to anybody who does it for a long period of time, by the time they retire, their knees are shot, their hips are shot and price his groin has been through it for a long time now uh it, it was a stretch during his prime where it was like five or six years in a row he ended the season on the injured reserve what uh, there was one that was an accidental concussion in practice but most of them were knee and groin injuries and eventually when you have that many cumulative injuries in the same area it's going to slow you down and that's clearly come for price he has spurts where he can be what you expect Curry price to be we saw that in the playoffs last year but on a consistent basis, it just isn't there. And for what they're paying him, you know, 
it, it's not what they expected, not what they need. It, it's a tough situation, but I, I guess they just th- feel that price can be so good in those short sample sizes that if they can line it up at the right time, they can still make some hay, but it's just not a smart way to, to build a team. And I, I think that's the thing about the Canadians that covering them has been a fairly consistent issue is that they can make some good moves, but they can never get over the hump because there's always something not smart about what they're doing or not efficient. And whether it's coaching or player acquisition or player deployment, there's always just too much that they do wrong and like obviously wrong. And uh, I'm just not sure if uh, they're ever going to get into contender status until something changes throughout the entire organization. Yeah, absolutely. And Chase, I, I think you could probably touch on that too, because one thing we've gone back and forth on is just, you know, how, how big of a mismatch this team is sometimes with what Bergevin's moves are. Yeah, it just seems like they're kind of half in, half out, right? Like, it seems like they can't decide what they want to be. Yeah, yeah. And I think the last three years before they made the playoffs last year was like the first time where it seemed like they were committed to riding it out and trying to build through the draft. And because of that, they have like players like Caulfield and so, like some organizational depth coming up that looks promising. But it's once again, one of those situations where you, you watch the Canadians play and they so desperately need a superstar, right? Like they have the depth, uh, they have some really good players, but you watch them go up against like the Edmonton Oilers or whatever, right? And they've handled Connor McDavid really well this year. And through I think they've played six or seven games against the Oilers and won, I think, five. And through most of that time, they've held McDavid and Dreisaitl in check. But then at the end of the last two games, all of a sudden in the third period, McDavid's like, all right, I've had enough. And he just takes over the game. And I think in those two games, he had six points in the third period of each game. One game, the Oilers came back and won in one game. They couldn't quite make it. And they just don't have that. Nobody on their roster can do that. They don't have anybody who can take the reins. And I think they expected price to do that on the defensive side, to just hold them in games. And that's why he got that contract uh, among other reasons where Bergevin was in a pretty tough predicament after just trading PK Subban. So you, you have to maintain one of your franchise cornerstones, but it, it hasn't uh, turned out that way. And they made big bets on price and Weber on the wrong half of their careers. And like what I, what I've been pushing for several years now, and especially last year after that great playoff run, like uh, thing they had, that was uh, a very big surprise after finishing 24th in the regular season. They won their play in round against the penguins in a pretty lopsided series, to be honest. And they played the flyers really strong. Uh, the Weber that we saw in those playoffs, I think that was the last time we will see that level and they should have traded him. It was a tough thing. It would be a tough thing to do a tough sell for the players on the team, obviously, but they should have traded Weber and tried to get a a top end pick for this year, but uh, they are constantly trying to contend and rebuild at the same time. And the league doesn't work that way. No, it's definitely better, you know, to, to be on one end of the spectrum or the other to then to be just right in the middle. And, you know, like, you see teams like um, Minnesota, Columbus, even Ottawa, I think, was a perfect perfect example of that for a while where they had one of the one of the top three players in the league in Eric Carlson for four or five years there. And 
they didn't do squat with them outside of one run to the conference final because they were half in half out rebuilding every single year. And then every other year they missed the playoffs and, you know, now they've committed to tearing it down and, you know, they still have ways to go, but they have a really, really promising young future ahead of them now. And it's because they, you know, probably maybe for the wrong reasons that they didn't want to pay people, but uh, they committed to a full rebuild and they said, okay, this is going to suck for three years. And now they look good. And that's just what most of the, most of the good teams, you know, I think that we see wing cups do, whether that's Pittsburgh and Washington through sustained success over 12 years, the way they started that was by rebuilding too. So I think it's a good point. Chase, did you have anything you wanted to, to add or go from there? Well, so something that we've seen a lot is you said they need a star. I completely agree. A lot of research shows hockey is a strong link game. So your best player is more correlated with winning than having depth or whatever. Do you think there's because they seem like they want to contend is there something they could actually do to this roster to make it a contender or are they stuck in no man's land i mean i think it's always hard from an outsider's perspective to say you know like oh they can go out and get whoever but i look at the prospect pool that they've been able to build and they're a little bit tight against the cap right now but any smart team can wiggle out of that you know, you can always find some sucker to take a contract that you don't like. I, I mean, Shea Weber, even this year, after the rough 40-ish games that he's had, people love Shea Weber. You, know, like you can get somebody to eat that money, even if you don't get a whole hell of a lot back. And I look at a team like the Vegas Golden Knights, right? And that's a team that really leveraged the assets that they had. Who? What team in our history of watching the game that we've been alive has gone out and been like, okay, uh, Ottawa senators and Montreal Canadians, we're going to trade for your best and we're going to trade for your best forward too. And you're going to get, you know, good returns, but we're not going to miss it. You know, like that, it's insane. How the hell did they pull Mark stone and Max patch out of the butts, give them huge contracts and they're great. So like anytime that I hear like, Oh, well, it's hard to find, you know, a, an elite forward on the trade market. No, be creative, flex your assets. You have to make a decision whether you're in it to win now or win for the future. That's the big thing. And you have to stick to that. And one of the issues for Montreal through Bergevin tenure is he changes his mind all the time. There was a time where the Canadians were all in on fast transition players on defense. That was what they went for. Their, their defense consisted of like Jeff Petrie, P.K. Subban, uh, Nathan Beaulieu when he was a prospect before he got kind of ruined and be, tried to become a tough guy. Mark Barbario, all these guys, underrated uh, puck movers, that was their jam. And then the next season, they were like, well, actually, we're going to go with Douglas Murray. And it's like, okay, what what's what's the point? Like, what are we doing here? And, it, and they flip-flop back and forth over and over again. So there's no consistent build. Right. So like Bergevin has been in charge. This is year nine, I believe. And it sounds like, oh, well, you know, he hasn't been able to build for nine years because, you know, this happened and this happened. All this stuff is self-made. If you are consistent in your approach and you believe in your approach, then over that much time, you better have a good team or your approach is wrong. But you can't really say Bergevin's approach is wrong because he changes it every season. So like it, some seasons he kills it. Some seasons he's terrible. It's hard to really figure out what they're going to do because <laughs> there's no predicting it right now. They're pretty good at acquiring really good uh, middle of the lineup to maybe even fringe top line forwards and a bunch of pluggers on defense. They really love 
guys who can't move the puck on D. That's that's what they love to have. It's Jeff Petrie and a bunch of guys who can barely skate. Uh, ben Chirac can skate, but he's not very good with the puck. So it's 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 an interesting way to go about it, but uh, I don't think it's going to get anywhere. Yeah, I have a I question think... about. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, Jace. All you. I was just going to say that the, the worst part about uh, Bergevin is that it's been nine years and the future looks bleaker than it did say four years ago or whatever. But well, I don't know if the future looks bleaker because they have the prospects. It's just like Caden Primo is the heir apparent to Carey Price, right? Is he going to be as good as Carey Price? Doubtful. I mean, Carey Price was already in the NHL at his age, already, you know, pushing like rookie of the year, uh, contending. He was, he was incredible right away. So it, probably not. Uh, we can say they're not rushing him, but that's if, if a player is ready, he's ready. Uh, you know, they, they've got a lot of depth, but the way I look at it is not necessarily four years ago, but when Bergevin took over, when Bergevin took over the Montreal Canadiens, he had prime price, prime PK Subban, prime Max Pacioretty, rookie Brendan Gallagher, rookie Alex Galchenyuk. You know, like this is, that's a core to build around. You know, Galchenyuk didn't work out through fault of his own, the team, his dad, you know, the coaching staff, lots of different reasons there, but he's still a good player. Uh, he just didn't become the, the player that he was supposed to be. But if competent people were in charge from that outset, that should have been a cup contending team, but they couldn't build around it. So I, I look at, you know, people who are very excited about the future and like, yeah, Cole Caulfield looks great, but Jeff Petrie's going to be 35 soon. You know, Weber is already 35. Price is 33, turning 34. This is an old core. And Brennan Gallagher is going to age quicker because of the game that he plays. You know, Jonathan Duran had to take a personal leave this year. So I don't know what's going on there. He deserves his privacy, so I won't even speculate. There, there's a lot more question marks than just a good future, you know? So... It's probably brighter than it was four years ago after they made their big trade on D and bringing in Shea Weber, but they're not better right now. And whether they'll be better in the future is highly questionable. Chase, you go. <laughs> well, so this is a little off topic now. You were mentioning about how they've been good at finding like middle of the lineup guys. And I think, I guess I, and a whole bunch of other people didn't give them enough credit for that. Cause I looked at a lot of their moves this off season was kind of like, what the hell are they doing? And they look reasonable in hindsight at worst and good at best, a lot of the signings. But I want to ask you about Joel Edmondson, because that signing confused the living hell out of me. And I don't watch him enough to know if, like, there's something missing with the regression models. But, like, all evidence points to the fact that he's actually been, like, really good. And that confuses the hell out of me. And I'd love to ask someone who watches him closely about it. Yeah. So Edmondson to start the season was what I expected him to be, which was unbelievably brutal. Uh, he dragged Jeff Petrie into the gutter to the worst numbers of his career. And then he started to figure it out and figured out that if he just deferred to Petrie all the time, his life would be a lot easier. So he played, he simplified his game remarkably and mainly worried about like zone entry denials and deferring to Petrie. So it was like very smooth. Everything worked really well. And for a long stretch, that pairing just crushed it. And part of it was Petrie was on like a hell bender of a scoring streak. Like I, his on ice shooting percentage was like 15% at one point. People were like, Oh, he's going to win the North. He's going to win the North. And like, he's playing great, but 
it's not going to last. And it just so happened, like he started to go cold a little bit and uh, Ben Sherratt was injured and they flipped Edmondson up with Weber and gave Petrie Kulak. So Petrie's on ice numbers remained spectacular with Kulak actually improved a little bit and his scoring dried up at the same time. So everyone was like, ah, oh, Kulak stole his scoring away. And then they put Edmondson back with Petrie and Edmondson with Weber was not good at all. And Edmondson back with Petrie now has been again, like an adjustment period. They're starting to get it back together a little bit now, but for, for starters, it was pretty rough. He, he's, he's a guy who can fit with an elite partner, but lots of guys are that, you know? So it's like, he's fine. He's not a detriment to the team when he's with Petrie, but he's not a guy that you trade for and then sign to term. And I think that's kind of the issue that the Canadians have on defense is, you know, like, Joel Edmondson, Ben Sherratt, these types of players are a dime a dozen and they go out and acquire them for big money, big term. And it's like, you should be developing players like that. Like Alexander Romanov, that's who he's going to be is that stay at home, safe guy who, by the way, they hyped up in the off season as like the next PK Subban. <laughs> it's like, uh, no, he's, he's the next Alexi Emelin. He's a little bit better, but that's what he is. He doesn't move the puck that well. He doesn't make, like a high leverage play is he just plays very safe and hits a lot. So they, they've got a lot of the same player. And uh, un, unfortunately, I think that holds them back, but th- their, their evaluation of what they need on defense has been a consistent issue for the entire time that Bergevin has been in charge. Yeah. That gives me saying how he defers to Petrie constantly. It gives me flashbacks to watching the Leafs whole right side, just figure it, just try to feed Riley and Gardner and run everything through them. And it worked, it was painful, but it worked all right in the regular season. And the second you get a seven game playoff series, like God, this does not work at all. Yeah. As soon as it's very predictable and teams know to just shut, shut down the, uh, the guy who's going to be carrying the puck out. And it, you know, you could say the same thing about like Carlson Mathot, but Carlson was, you know, a top three player in the league at that time. So you could try to key on in them. But uh, it didn't really work very well. Worked better now that his ankle's all messed up. But uh, yeah, but once he got to CC yeah. Fanoff, then then you just had no chance because both of them <laughs> oh, were God. bullets. CC Fanoff. <laughs> oh. How did that? It's crazy to think of those Senators teams from not that long ago and think like they had Mark Stone, they had Eric Carlson. Why weren't they good? And then you're like, oh, CC Fanoff was the second pair. I get it now. Yeah, that was second, the second taking team in the conference finals, was it not? Yeah, taking yeah. the big minutes too. They didn't even put Eric Carlson against like Sidney Crosby. It was CC Fanuff against Sidney Crosby. It's like, oh my that god, that is a choice. <laughs> it was a choice all the way to Game Seven, and then they tried it again the next year, and it shockingly did not work quite as well for them. But uh, <laughs> um, I think this that's a pretty good transition into the playoff talk here because it's um pretty much guaranteed that Montreal is making the playoffs at this point. You know, it was, again, I I say the mood kind of changed because about a week ago we would have been like, well, if the flames would have took, you know, three or four points off them, they would have been erased. No, they're 10 points up on the flames. Now 10 games left. I'm assuming, you know, the flames have, sorry, five games left. The flames have six games. So it's just about all but over. Um, The biggest question now is, are they going to be third or fourth? They're tied with the jets, 57 points. They both have five games left. 
At the time of recording, Montreal's down two goals to the Sens with a period left and the Jets and Flames play tonight. So we'll see. But um, the, the one thing you brought up, and actually Chase brought it up, I guess, too, was the, you know, funneling the puck to the, the one side of the defense and, you know, how that's going to, how teams catch on to that kind of stuff over a seven-game series. What I'm really curious to get your opinion on um, about this Habs team is, do you think they're the quote unquote built for the playoffs? Because that's a narrative that seems to get thrown around a lot this year. They're this tough, gritty, physical, wear you down team that's built for the playoffs and just get to the playoffs, survive. And then that's when they'll excel. Do you buy into that narrative at all? Or do you think it's going to be more of the same of what we've seen? I, I think there's some level of truth to it. And the main reason why is that that defense is so cross check happy right? Like you get near the net and there's just sticks flying everywhere. Uh, Weber, Sherratt, both love that. Uh, they're, they're just brutal with it. So when the whistles start to go away, sure, they'll be a little bit more effective, especially over a second game series where you can start to physically wear people down. But at the same time, like if, if the Canadians are able to move up and end up playing Edmonton, yeah, they did a good job shutting down Connor McDavid for stretches this season, but like over a seven game series, it's like fighting the tide. Like it's going to go at one point or another, and they're not very swift defending off the rush. So like Connor McDavid just needs to break through a couple times. Right. And as soon as that ball gets rolling, there's no stopping it. So I, I think you could say if Carey price gets hot, yes, they'll be much better in the playoffs, but that would be true of the, of the regular season as well. So if we see the same Carey price that we saw last year, and he's now had, the the rest because he's been concussed uh sure maybe they can make some some noise in the playoffs but built for the playoffs i think is just some is another term for saying slow right <laughs> like slow and big on defense and like sure they might be more effective in the playoffs but i also look at like what happened in the playoffs last year and everyone was praising the sharat weber pairing weber was legitimately very good sharat was terrible the Canadians got absolutely caved in while he was on the ice. And I talked like talked to a few different reporters and they were like, Oh, you talk to players around like the flyers or the penguins and they hate playing against Sherrod. Cause every time he's, he's out there, they're getting punished and cross-checked in the back and hurt. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine. They're lighting him up though. <laughs> like they might physically not like it. It was this it's doesn't matter though if they physically don't like it and have success, it doesn't matter if he's intimidating, like they're still scoring while he's out there. So sure. Built for the playoffs. I, I think that just is another term for slow. Yeah. I, I think I kind of, you know, err on the same side to where I, I think it's a fair point. You know, once the whistles go away, they do seem like a team that they just, they get chippy enough where they're going to be able to take advantage of a little more things here and there. But um, you know, at the end of the day, it's just, they're very clearly not as good as Toronto and I don't think they're yeah. as good as Edmonton, but you know, I think they would, they, they should give, give a series to either one of them. Like I don't think either team would be going into that series thinking we're going to sweep these guys or anything like that, you know, and uh, I'll pose a question to both of you. I'll start with chase just cause he's, you know, a Leafs fan, but if you're the Leafs right now, are you rather, would you rather face Montreal or Winnipeg? Uh, that's kind of tough, but, I think I would almost rather play Winnipeg just because you know you're going to control play and Winnipeg's whole thing is shooting talent and having an elite goalie, but you know you have the shooting talent to contend with them. So I think I'd rather have Winnipeg. 
Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you as well. I mean, Winnipeg is one of those teams that's really annoying to analyze because by every publicly and privately available metric that measures like what should happen, they're not a good team at all. They're just terrible. But then you slap a Vesna winning goaltender on there and like three extremely high end goal scorers that shoot from like they can score from anywhere and uh, they outperform their expectations all the time. So it's like you never want to take them lightly, but they're in a tailspin now. They've been due for a massive regression all season long. I could see them just like bottoming out right right into the playoffs and not being a threat. Uh, the Canadians are just a team that I, it's hard to take them lightly because as much as Price has not been a top goalie over the last several years, he can be as good as Hellebuck in a short stretch. The, the Penguins found that out last year. They were publicly worried about it and then pretended they weren't, and he was exactly what they were worried about. Uh, so there's that factor. And then they, they have depth. It's hard to compete with at times. Like Maybe not as much of an issue for Toronto because they have some depth too, and their top end is so great. But for Edmonton, if they can slow down McDavid and Dreisaitl just a little bit and just pound the the Oilers depth players, they could win that series for sure. Yeah. I think I would probably choose Winnipeg if I'm Toronto right now as well. And uh, you know, another reason for with that regression too, uh, you know, and it kind of ties into the Carey price stuff, but you know, we've seen fatigue and Frederick Anderson, I think is a great, honestly, example of this over a season when they, when goalies play too much, Connor Hellebuck's about to make his 42nd start of the year tonight, which on pay that would put him on pace for 66 over a full season, which like, Again, you just, you don't see that very often. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you don't want to analyze goaltending too much in a short sample because you're going to get burnt if you do that. Sometimes a goalie is amazing. Sometimes they're not. You can place, you know, better odds on which goalie should be better and, and not. But at the end of the day, it, it, it's so random at times, right? So, um, you know, the, the one thing that I would really look at with Hellebuck too is not only is the team starting to tailspin, but we've seen with goalies sometimes, you know, as it gets into playoffs, the, the goaltender gets fatigued too because, and, you know, Vasilevsky talked about this, a couple of years ago when he really took over the starting range too, that by, you know, end of the year playoff time, it was just, he was getting exhausted because he wasn't used to, to going that much. And I think that's another factor where it's like, you know, the Habs have used both Jake Allen and Carey Price. Yeah. Either one of those guys could get hot. And so if you're already thinking that, you know, I, I like the Habs full on roster, I'm like, I like the, the Jets top six more, but I like the Habs roster top to bottom more than the Jets it's just the goaltending, but when the goaltending something, you're not even sure how well you can rely on it. Like I, I, I would also probably take the jets if I had to choose, if I'm Toronto. One yep. thing for the Leafs though, that I also wanted to ask you about, you kind of talked about injuries. So I don't know if there's been like a question for you, has there been some sort of like stylistic change under the Habs new coach? relative to Julian or is it do you believe it's mainly just injuries because I believe they're like Corsi and XG has kind of taken a bit of a tailspin too in Montreal yeah I mean I, I can't really point to anything specifically stylistically like early on he tried to get the D activating a little bit more but that didn't really stick so much I, I think most of the changes have been that uh, Nick Suzuki had a really prolonged series where he was or prolonged stretch where he was struggling. And for the start starting stretch of the year, the Canadians top three lines were just crushing it. Uh, all three centers were, were killing it in the, uh, the on ice like control of play. And so Suzuki's line started to crater and the deployment overall, like the choices were very poor. So you had games where like your leader in ice time, 
for I think like the first 10 games straight under uh, Ducharme, the leader in ice time was Ben Sherratt. And you had games where like Joel, Joel Armia, who at, at times looks incredible. And at times is just like really annoying to watch. Cause you know, he has like this incredible skill and he'll sit there and like stick handles so long that he just like goes into the boards instead of taking a shot. Uh, he would be like getting more ice time than Coke Kanyami. It, it was just like very all over the place, very perplexing decisions. And I think that that had to do more with things falling apart than anything. And now it's just the injuries. So it's like, it's a little bit convoluted, but it's a complex situation. Um, I, I think Dominic Ducharme has faced a lot of criticism that a lot of it, some of it is warranted, you know, like uh, personnel deployment, uh, especially in overtime, <laughs> there have been some bad decisions made there uh, until recently, but uh, overall, I think it's very tough to, to like examine a new coach's approach to the game because there's no practice time right now, right? The schedule is so compressed. They have no chance to actually institute any changes. Like it's very rare with in-season coaching changes to see a lot of stylistic or systemic change anyway. In this season, it's got to be nearly impossible. So in, in my opinion, Claude Julien shouldn't have been fired. It should have been the, all the assistants, uh, you know, Luke Richardson, Kirk Muller, all the guys in charge of special teams. Uh, but I don't think Ducharme is the reason the Canadians have been up and down. I think he just hasn't fixed anything either. Yeah. It's also one of those cases. I think it's probably also one of those cases where it's like, you can only do so much with a roster, right? Like it's again, I I don't, I don't think they have a bad roster, but if you told me at the beginning of the year, this roster was going to look really, really good for a stretch of games, really, really bad for a stretch of games. And then just kind of okay for the rest of it. I'd be like, yeah, that seems about what I would expect out of them, you know, given what this team's built. So um, yep. the only other Pretty question, much that, yeah, the, the only other question I really had, and there's no way to really analyze this. I would say it's just 50, 50. Uh, do you think they'll catch Winnipeg and pass them? Or do you think they'll end up in the fourth seed this, uh, this playoffs? Um, I, I think they probably want to catch Winnipeg, but I look at like the effort that they've given against the Senators as we're recording this and, I think their schedule is too compressed to to get any consistency out of. They've got a ton of games left in a short amount of time. I think a lot of guys are tired. The injuries are brutal. Uh, I think Winnipeg, as much as they've been struggling, will end up being in third and Toronto will have to deal with the Canadians, which honestly, that's what I want. Not for any like outcome reason. I just want to see a Habs Leaf series for the first time in my lifetime. I mean, for the... <laughs> You could be over 45 and still have never seen a Habs Leaf series. That's insane. We need to get these two teams hating each other again. I think hockey is better for it. The league is better for it. The sport's better for it. We need to have a true rivalry between the Canadians and the Maple Leafs. This year has to be the year. Yeah, selfishly, that's what I've been cheering for. I've been pissed at Winnipeg for about two weeks now for even going through partly of this tailspin that it's even a chance that they could, you know, we could get uh, Toronto Montreal taken away from us because, you know, that is, uh, uh, that that would just be absolute chaos. And I I am fully here for it. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. This was awesome. We'll have to have you on again later in, you know, the off season and when there's uh, more to talk about with this team. Um, Plug some stuff. Where can people find you and your work? Uh, I'm writing a column for the Montreal Gazette that you can check out. It's called by the numbers. And also I have my podcast, the cross check NHL show with the locked on podcast network with my good friend, Mary Clark. And for now, that's all I'm doing. Perfect. Yeah. I totally suggest everyone to go check those out. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great night.
Thanks for having me. As mentioned, thank you so much to Andrew for joining us. Uh, he's one of my favorite podcast guests to listen to on everyone else's podcast, and he's someone Chase and I have had wanted to have on for a really uh, long time. So I'm happy we can make it work this week, and definitely someone I think that uh, we'll want to have on for a full hour's length or so uh, in the summer as well. Um, this is a longer episode, but uh, you know it, it, there was a lot to talk about between you know the. Uh, uh, Habs, and then just obviously that Tom Wilson stuff. So thank you everyone for listening. As always, you can find my stuff at lastwordonhockey.com and milehighhockey.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at NHL Sense and stuff. Chase on Twitter at CMHockey66. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. If there's a guest you want to hear in the upcoming weeks, let us know. Um, you know our plan. I think in the upcoming weeks here is to you know get ready for the playoffs. Uh, I think by next week, the playoffs should be getting ready to start, and we'll be able to get a get a good idea of what the playoff picture is going to be looking like. So we'll have our preview coming out, and and that'll be exciting. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for all the support, uh, liking, sharing on Twitter, and you know even just and you know just listening. It means a lot. So um, everyone, have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week.